Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. This is something we really have to remember about biological pollution. Unlike chemical pollution, it will not dilute over time. There's no way to control it, no way to isolate it. Once biological pollution is out there, it mutates, it disseminates, it runs its own course. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Scientists tell us that concern with the environment will no longer be one of many single issues in the next century. It will move to the center of the stage. It will become the context of everything, of our lives, our businesses, our politics. We are, in fact, moving from the information age to the age of biology. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we salute the pioneers, the biological pioneers who are working with nature to heal nature, reducing the human footprint, honoring native wisdom, and restoring the earth by changing the world. Potatoes, tomatoes, butter, ice cream, strawberries, macaroni, corn chips, tofu, corn on the cob, hard candy, chocolate candy, pancakes, milk, pizza, french fries, peanut butter, cornflakes, cheese, bread. These are some of the common foods that, in the United States, often contain genetically engineered ingredients. Shocking experiments have been conducted on livestock like cows, pigs, goats, and chickens as well. Scientists are modifying life to fit the constraints of technology in the name of feeding the hungry and healing the sick. What is fueling the rush towards genetically engineered foods? Why have biotech companies been allowed to test bioengineered foods and medicines on North American consumers without their knowledge? What lies behind the fascination to tinker with the building blocks of life? In this program, Bioneers Kenny Osabel and Andrew Kimbrell shed light on the disturbing genetic engineering debate and activist Luke Anderson reports from the successful campaign that has slowed the spread of genetically engineered biological pollution in Great Britain. Please join us for the next half hour as we explore genetic engineering or genetic roulette. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. If you like nuclear energy, you're going to love genetic engineering. <laughs> the issues that it raises are of paramount concern in terms of health as well as ecology, but they also raise really profound ethical concerns and real questions about just exactly who is in charge. And as far as we know, the Earth was not created with barcodes or patents. Kenny Osabel, founder of the Bioneers Conference and the Collective Heritage Institute, which conducts education and research in the areas of biodiversity, ecological farming practices, and environmental restoration. He is the author of When Healing Becomes a Crime, The Amazing Story of the Hoxie Cancer Clinics and the Return of Alternative Therapies, and Restoring the Earth, Visionary Solutions from the Bioneers. He provided the introduction to a genetic engineering workshop at a recent Bioneers conference. The very definition of a species is that it's a closed gene pool. 
And violating those boundaries is a very reckless act, which inevitably will have many, many unforeseen consequences. The bottom line of this is that these so-called inventions are alive. You cannot put the genie back in the bottle. Um, they quite literally take on a life of their own. And what we now face is the ultimate form of contamination, which is biological pollution. The recent evidence that monarch butterflies are being harmed and killed by BT-engineered corn in the Midwest you know, is clear evidence that the biological realm is a permeable membrane. You cannot contain these things. It's really not genetic engineering. It's genetic roulette. Um, one of the happy ironies, actually, of economic globalization today it has come forth with bioengineered foods. As I'm sure many of you know, Europe, especially um, England and Germany, have essentially begun to reject GMO foods, genetically modified organisms. The same thing is happening in India, where people have simply pulled the plants out of the ground and burned them. Um, And this is leading to the beginnings of a potential market crash. The Deutsche Bank in Germany did an economic analysis of this, a very influential, very large global bank. And they've essentially said that GMOs do not have a future and have given their investors a sell order. Large companies, including Gerber, the maker of baby foods, has said that they will not use this in their baby foods. And um, GE crops are actually are selling at a discount now because they're so unpopular. So they're actually losing money on these things, and they're below market rates. And meanwhile, of course, organic foods are growing at about 20% a year. They've never been more popular. And the insurance industry is starting to pull out because this all looks very shaky and dangerous, which is a very important thing. Um, but these you know, huge and very unexpected developments really could signal the demise of genetic engineering in foods. But I would really caution people about being overly optimistic or getting at all complacent about this. Um, the USDA has already approved about 50 genetically engineered crops for general release, for unlimited release. Over half the world's soybeans and a third of the corn now contain genes spliced from other life forms. A number of products contain human genes, and as many of you know, mad cow disease, which is now understood to be a disease of cannibalism, um, we could face mad human disease if we're not already there, you know? Um, what it seems the most likely is that they're going to pursue the ultimate grail of genetic engineering, of course, which is the consumer gene. And when they, <laughs> when they find that, I think it's all over, so... Kenny Osabel. The very first genetically engineered plant that I ever had litigation on had to do with something called frostban. And frostban really was, uh, they, they took the Pseudomonas syringae bacteria, which really causes uh, frost formation, and altered it, genetically engineered it, and then uh, sprayed it on plants. Andrew Kimbrell is an attorney, activist, and author who has committed his life to political, community, and social action. In 1994, he established the International Center for Technology Assessment. His books include 101 Ways to Help Save the Earth, The Human Body Shop, The Engineering and Marketing of Life, and The Masculine Mystique. He spoke to a Bioneers conference audience. And the idea was to spray these on strawberries and, p and potatoes and lots of other crops so they could grow in lower temperatures. And um, the problem is that we found out that it colonized much better on weeds than it did on plants. A slight problem. Uh, for the University of California and, and the two or three biotech companies. So in other words, if this thing got widely disseminated, you would see a massive increase in the growth of weeds in under frost conditions. 
So we were able to successfully stop that with a, with a lawsuit. It was, uh, they finally did a minor field test and dropped this product. But I think it's very instructive because, you know, as, as we look to the evolution of what we have done over the last century or two, we have gone from uh, a natural milieu and a social milieu into essentially a technological milieu. If you look at everything we do, our work, our play, our communication, it's almost all mediated by technology. The energy we use, our transportation, the food we eat, uh, education we get, how we travel, how we communicate. And we have discovered something really troublesome about the technological milieu with all the conveniences and some of the, quotes miracles it's given us. It seems to be incompatible with natural systems. So there's two choices that we have had historically, and I think many of us who worked on the appropriate technology movement 20 or 30 years ago said, aha, we're going to devolve technology so it more elegantly suits uh, with natural systems in the natural world, and it's more empathetic. Instead, the biotechnologists, you can see by this experiment, have a slightly different agenda. Their agenda is not to change technology so that it fits life, but to change life so it fits with the technological system. So if we're going to have climate change, let's not get rid of the technologies that are creating this change in the very biochemistry of our planet, but let's change life so it can fit the new conditions that technology is creating. A rather breathtaking and, in my view, horrifying, horrifying uh, attempt on their part. But here you see an early example of that. Now, as Kenny was mentioning in his introduction, they have not limited the uh, genetic engineering of organisms to plants. We can talk a little bit more about plants later, but I wanted to introduce you to another great miracle that they have done, which is they have taken human genes and put them in animals. When this appeared, Dr. Ralph Brinster in 1982 at the University of Pennsylvania was successfully put the genes responsible for human growth into the permanent genetic code of mice. And you see the, the gigantic mice. This was Nature magazine. Science magazine had a very similar cover, and this it was a, a furor in the scientific community, my goodness, we've got giant mice. My first response was kind of bizarre when I saw this. I remember I said, how dare they? I mean, how dare they? How dare they do this? I mean, how dare they assault the dignity and integrity of a creature in this way? But mine was a minority view. This was treated with just enormous acclaim. But the fear did die down after a while, and people asked rather a sensible question, which is, what are you going to do with a giant mouse? But I think what we see here, and I, I saw this recently, I don't know how many of you saw this story, front page story on a car breaking the sound barrier. Everyone see that thing? And it occurred to me, why is this news? I mean, they can only do it in a specific like, desert, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of miles, and no one can use it. But why are we so excited by the fact that a car broke the sound barrier? All it did was add a little bit more to climate change and, 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 and ozone, ground level ozone pollution. Why is this exciting? Why is this exciting? I mean, what are we going to do with a gigantic mouse? Why is this exciting? You know, over the years I've been working on these technology issues, I think behind a lot of this, they'll talk to you about utility, and we'll, we'll talk a little about that later. But I think there's something I call the technological imagination, and I think we have to face it front up, which is I think there is a romance about breaking limits. You know, there's an AT&T commercial that says, imagine a world without limits where everything is possible. And I think for much of the last century, We've engaged, not always consciously, in the creating of this imaginary world where there are no limits and where everything is possible. And so when we see a car breaking the sound barrier or we see a gigantic mouse with human genes or we see somebody walking on the moon, which also turned out to have very little utility. Uh, but the point was we'd broken a barrier. We had confirmed the propaganda of the technological imagination that that's what we're about as a community. That's what we're about as the human community, to create a world without limits where anything is possible. 
And I think if there's one lesson that we should get when we look at genetic engineering and the breaking of species boundaries the way they are is that we need a new romance of limits. We need to understand what makes anything lovable, any, anything understandable is limits. You can't even play a game without limits. You can't have good relationships without limits. And we certainly can't have a good relationship with the natural world without a deep understanding of limits. But this is a very graphic demonstration of the technological imagination at work. This is not really so much an act of science as one of imagination, in my view. This is the pig that Kenny was talking about. Um, it is true that they decided that a giant mouse wasn't too useful. So they decided, why not make giant livestock? Why not use that same experiment, which is micro-injection of human growth genes into pigs and cows and sheep, have huge farm animals that will, quotes, feed the world. Yeah, whenever they want to do something really bad, they always say they're going to feed the world. I've always noticed that. It's kind of a natural, you know. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Vern Purcell, following on the inspirational example of Dr. Ralph Brinster, decided to take human growth genes and put them into pigs. I went up to Beltsville, Maryland. This is a picture that I took of pig number 6707, his first success. As you can see, this is a very tragic comic creature. Its musculature has overwhelmed it. It was cross-eyed, bow-legged. And I talked to Dr. Purcell. I said, this is, doesn't look so good. And um, he said, Andy, you know, he said, the Wright brothers had their crash and burns too. And when I tried to inform him there might be a difference between using an animal versus a plane, a machine, uh, he looked kind of empty-eyed and didn't quite seem to understand what I was talking about. Interestingly enough, he had many other attempts, and none of them actually were, were, were successes. Uh, but imagine for a moment, if you will, taking elephant growth genes and putting them into early-stage uh, human embryos and seeing what happens to the musculature and the physiology of the growing human fetus as it comes to term. Imagine the pain. Imagine the suffering. Imagine even doing that. And I think you get a glimpse into Dr. Purcell's mind. Andrew Kimbrell, the author of The Human Body Shop, The Engineering and Marketing of Life. My name is Michael Toms. In this program, we're exploring genetic engineering or genetic roulette. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Again, here's Andrew Kimbrell. Uh, this is another experiment. That's Dr. Purcell himself, by the way. This is another thing he was very proud of showing me. This is a pig that, that has the skin of a cow. He was able to genetically engineer it, apparently thinking that it might be easier to slaughter. Once again, we know how disastrous factory farm has been for animals, but again, the idea is not to get rid of factory farming with all of its hideous foodborne illnesses and water contamination, but maybe change animals so that they fit the factory farming system. Uh, one of the more interesting recent experiments, and one that has actually now been patented as well, is in both humans and mammals and even in, in, in chickens, uh, the mothering instinct is believed to be associated with a hormone prolactin. Uh, what they decided was that egg layers are not efficient if they want to brood. Right? We don't want the mothering instinct in our egg layers. Uh, once again, animals turn out to be inefficient in our technological system. So what they have done is genetically engineer and alter the brains of chickens to remove the mothering instinct. Uh, Purdue University and Ohio University both uh, worked on this. It is now patented. So once again, you see the same pattern that we're talking about, this breathtaking attempt to change uh, the living kingdom so that it fits with a technological system. 
And of course, there's been many, many other genetic engineering experiments running from the horrific to the comical. In one case, the uh, researchers here at the University of California, Davis, took the uh, fluorescent genes from fireflies and, and uh, were able to put them into tobacco plants and get tobacco plants that glowed 24 hours a day. Having been brought up in a left-wing family, I immediately uh, thought this was an, yet another way to exploit workers and make them work all night. I was told by the researchers that this is not the case. And I said, well, then is it for smokers to be able to see their cigarettes at midnight? I don't catch this. And they said, no, it's just, it was just interesting. It was just interesting. Remember Dolly. How amusing, by the way, that Dr. Wilmot would uh, use the mammary glands of a sheep and think it was funny to call it after name it after Dolly Parton. What a sense of humor. What a guy. Um, this was Dolly. We all read about Dolly. Uh, it's very important that we understand why cloning is. Cloning is not some science fiction exercise that's fun to talk about and, and have on a variety of talk shows. If you have, as Dr. Wilmot has, and uh, at Proteins Pharmaceuticals Limited, and as Novartis has been doing, and Amgen, and a lot of other companies, if you have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars genetically engineering animals so that you can uh, have their blood or milk produce valuable pharmaceuticals for you, or have their organs suitable for human transplant. And by the way, uh, the first 20 human transplant with genetically engineered pig organs happened over the last weekend. It was just reported. Very, very dangerous. We can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but when you spend hundreds of thousands to create these genetically engineered animals with human genes in them, and let's say Dolly is, is roaming the fields and there's a ram in another field and happens to leap the fence and take a fancy to Dolly, and nature takes a course, what happens to Dolly when her genetic makeup? It gets polluted, right? She's mated with the ram. Now you have all these genes. And this is horrific for the genetic engineers. I mean, they view these animals as information machines, like computers. So to them, it would be like having a Mac uh, reproduce with an IBM or something. You know, all these information systems would get horribly confused, and all their work would go for naught. So you can't have natural reproduction, not to mention if Dolly would get a headache. Natural reproduction is far too um, unpredictable. Uh, it certainly doesn't create enough of the offspring. I mean, if you're these companies and you're getting investors, you want to be able to create millions of these animals identically like machines. These are animal machines. So cloning is absolutely essential for the biotechnology industry. It's not some sci-fi experiment. It's not some golly gee whiz thing. They have to be able to produce animals in completely predictable, mechanistic ways that do not involve natural reproduction if they're going to succeed. Otherwise, Wilmot and his company and all these other transnational corporations will fail. So... I hope this gives you some concept of what they're about, gives you some idea of the massive enterprise currently at work with these companies and these researchers, what they're really trying to do. Let's take a look a little bit about what it means. There's some obvious problems that we have here with this. And one I, would, I think is very urgent for all of us, all of us that have worked so hard for so many years in this field to think about, which is most of us have spent our lives worrying about chemical pollution, the contamination model of pollution. Absolutely essential, still is. But I think one of the problems that we've had in getting action and real action by a large group of people on biotechnology is that we have to have a new paradigm here, which is the disease model of pollution. Okay? This is very, very different. I call it biological pollution rather than chemical pollution. And we've known this through exotics that have come to our country, uh, chestnut blight and Dutch elm disease, those killer bees that are purportedly working their way up from South America. So we've known certain exotics. But now that we have biotechnologists creating tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of novel microbes, plants, and animals, and releasing them into the environment, ecological havoc could easily result. Let me give you an example. The Canadian government is currently taking human genes and chicken genes to create super salmon. 
I have two ideas here. One is to create a very, very large salmon, a la the mouse. And the second is to create a reproductive pattern in the salmon that does not require them to go back up to rivers, but allows them to actually reproduce in salt water. Right? Remember our theme here. Now that we've destroyed rivers, down them, destroy them, let's try and recreate living communities so it fits the new disasters we've created through our technological thing. You see this, how this is working? All right, so this is Weyerhaeuser Company and the Canadian government that are doing this. Now let's assume for a minute, and it's certainly their intention, to release this salmon into a bay, into the ocean. All right? And let's assume that its new size turns out to be dilatorious to its survival. It's easier mark for its prey, has to consume more of its, in its echo niche, right? But now it's mating with native salmon. Can we recall it? Anyway, we control that biological pollution? It's done. And the integrity of that species is lost forever. And this is something we really have to remember about biological pollution. Unlike chemical pollution, it will not dilute over time. There's no way to control it, no way to isolate it. Once biological pollution is out there, it mutates, it disseminates, you cannot control it. It runs its own course. We do not have a single law on the books on biological pollution, genetic engineering. I think it's going to be the major environmental issue we're going to have to address in the 21st century. Andrew Kimbrell. The specter of biological pollution and the reports of genetic engineering experiments on livestock, farm animals, and plants are at the very least disturbing. Fortunately, people everywhere are working together to educate one another and slow the rush toward the production of frankenfoods and genetically engineered medicines. We've been doing protests at supermarkets ranging from having people dressed up as mad scientists ha handing out experiment numbers saying thank you for taking part in my experiment <laughs> to, to uh, people dressed as uh, giant genetically engineered vegetables to um, getting customers to sign letters holding the managers of these supermarkets personally liable for any emotional, physical uh, harm caused by eating genetically engineered products uh, bought in their shops. Luke Anderson lives in South Devon, England. He writes, campaigns, and speaks throughout Great Britain and the United States on issues related to genetic engineering. We now have pretty much every major supermarket now withdrawing genetically engineered ingredients from their own brand products. Part of this was the fact that it was labeled and it meant that people could boycott it. And now basically the export market for the states has fallen away. Um, field trials. We've been organizing in communities outside field trials. I was involved in a, a court case where we took the government to court because uh, we had an organic farm down the road growing sweet corn right next to a government test site for genetically engineered maize. And so, you know, because of the cross-pollination, we decided to take the government to court. We lost. The community got fed up. They went in and pulled it up anyway. Um, so we, um, it, this is really growing as well. This isn't just like, this isn't just like a handful of, uh, of direct activists. We, we had one of the test sites near, near Watlington in Oxfordshire. We had 600 people walking on in the middle of the day, all dressed in contamination suits, with they holding flags. It looked like a scene out of Braveheart. I don't know if any of you have seen that. Marching over the hill. 600 people. We had women, you know, like uh, there's this one old lady. She was 84 years old, walking there with her walking stick, whacking her way at the canola. This full, full front of the, of the police. People are coming out in communities. They've had enough, basically. Organic farmers, beekeepers who don't want their their, their contaminated, they're moving their hives six miles away from genetically engineered crops so it doesn't contain pollen in, in the honey. Um, organic farmers also need to have six miles between them and a genetically engineered crop. Um, we're holding protests. We had a recent one at Bournemouth protesting against the fact that most animals, most livestock are actually fed genetically engineered food now 
And so we went um, dressed, we had 150, 150 Frisian cow suits and, uh, and 50 chickens and pigs and, and we went and descended on the Labour Party conference. You know, just trying to make it a bit fun. We have street theatre, we had a Monsanto pantomime last year and um, this kind of thing. We're buying shares in these companies and turning up to their annual general meetings and, uh, and, and making, making a fuss. Um, so, the diversity, I just want to end on the note of diversity. That's really what sustained our campaign, is a respect for what we're all doing. We're all coming from different places. This is such a diverse issue. Some people are more concerned about the free trade issues, some about human health, some about the environment. But the important thing is that we've found it really important to learn how to respect each other. So the direct action people are sitting together with the people who want labeling. The third world, people who are concerned about the impacts of small farms in the third world, are sitting at the same table as people who want consumer rights for, for people in England. This has really been vital. And, and I, I think it would be great if there could be that same kind of respect because this issue, more than any other that I've been involved in, has kind of brought people together and has really united people in their concern on this issue. Um, that's it for the moment. Thank you. <laughs>
To order a cassette tape of this program using your Visa, Discover, or MasterCard, call 1-800-388-8273. That's 1-800-388-TAPE. And please specify the program number. To receive a complimentary copy of the New Dimensions Journal or Tape Catalog, please write to New Dimensions Radio, P.O. Box 569, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. You can find us on the web at www.newdimensions.org.